Hello everybody and welcome back to our audiobook series on the Formula of Concord Solid Declaration. Today, um, well to be honest with you, the next section here, Article 6, is pretty short. But the next section after that, the next article on the Holy Supper is super long. And I don't think I have the time to, to just read both articles today. So instead what we're going to do is we are going to read Article 6 and we're going to have a small discourse on what's called the third use of the law. So with that said, let's go ahead and just read Article 6 here. It's pretty short, only a few pages, but it is one of those things where for Christians today it is extremely important, far more important than it was uh, 500 or so years ago when the Formula of Concord was first written. So that said, let's go ahead and just jump right into it. Article 6, the third function of the law. The law of God serves, one, not only to maintain external discipline and decency against dissolute and disobedient people, two, and to bring people to a knowledge of their sin through the law, three, but those who have been born anew through the Holy Spirit, who have been converted to the Lord and from whom the veil of Moses has been taken away, learn from the law to live and walk in the law. A controversy has arisen among a few theologians concerning this third and last function of the law. The one party taught and held that the regenerated do not learn the new obedience, that is, in what good works they should walk, from the law. Nor should this doctrine in any way be urged on the basis of the law, since they have been liberated by the Son of God, and have become his Spirit's temple, and hence are free, so that just as the Son spontaneously completes its regular course without any outside impulse, they too, through the inspiration and impulse of the Holy Spirit, spontaneously do what God requires of them. The other party taught that, Although true believers are indeed motivated by the Holy Spirit, and hence, according to the inner man, do the will of God from a free spirit, nevertheless the Holy Spirit uses the written law on them to instruct them, and hereby even true believers learn to serve God not according to their own notions, but according to his written law and word, which is a certain rule and norm for achieving a godly life in behavior in accord with God's eternal and immutable will. In order to explain and definitively to settle this controversy, we unanimously believe, teach, and confess that although truly believing Christians, having been genuinely converted to God and justified, have been freed and liberated from the curse of the law, they should daily exercise themselves in the law of the Lord, as it is written, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, Psalm 119, verse 1, verse 35, the first 47, verse 70, and verse 97. For the law is a mirror in which the will of God and what is pleasing to him is correctly portrayed. It is necessary to hold this constantly before believers' eyes, and continually to urge it upon them with diligence. It is true that the law is not laid down for the just, as St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 9, but for the ungodly. But this dare not be understood without qualification as though the righteous should live without the law. 
For the law of God is written on their hearts, just as the first man, immediately after his creation, received a law according to which he should conduct himself. On the contrary, it is St. Paul's intention that the law cannot impose its curse upon those who through Christ have been reconciled with God, nor may it torture the regenerated with its coercion, for according to the inner man they delight in the law of God. If believers and the elect children of God were perfectly renewed in this life through the indwelling spirit in such a way that in their nature and all its powers they would be totally free from sins, they would require no law, no driver. Of themselves and altogether spontaneously, without any instruction, admonition, exhortation, or driving by the law, they would do what they are obligated to do according to the will of God just as the sun, the moon, and all the stars of heaven regularly run their courses according to the order which God instituted for them once and for all, spontaneously and unhindered, without any admonition, exhortation, compulsion, coercion, or necessity, and as the holy angels render God a completely spontaneous obedience. But in this life, Christians are not renewed perfectly and completely. For all those, their sins are covered up through the perfect obedience of Christ, so that they are not reckoned to believers for damnation. And although the Holy Spirit has begun the mortification of the old Adam and their renewal in the spirit of their minds, nevertheless the old Adam still clings to their nature and to all its internal and external powers. Concerning this, the Apostle writes, I know that nothing good dwells within me. And again, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Likewise, I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind in making me captive to the law of sin. This is Romans 7, 18, 19, and 23. Likewise, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. Galatians 5 verse 17. Hence, because of the desires of the flesh, the truly believing, elect, and reborn children of God require in this life not only the daily teaching and admonition, warning and threatening of the law, but frequently the punishment of the law as well, to egg them on so that they follow the Spirit of God. As it is written, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Psalm 119, verse 71. And again, I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. And again, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Hebrews 12, verse 8. Dr. Luther thoroughly explains this at greater length in the summer portion of the church postil on the epistle of the night for the 19th Sunday after Trinity. It is also necessary to set forth distinctly what the gospel does, creates, and works in connection with the new obedience of believers and what function the law performs in this matter, as far as the good works of believers are concerned. The law indeed tells us that it is God's will and command that we should walk in the new life. But it does not give the power and ability to begin it or to do it. It is the Holy Spirit who is not given and received through the law, but through the preaching of the gospel. Galatians 3, verse 2 and verse 14. Who renews the heart. 
Then he employs the law to instruct the regenerate out of it and to show and indicate to them in the Ten Commandments what the acceptable will of God is, Romans 12, verse 2, and in what good works, which God has prepared beforehand, they should walk, Ephesians 2, verse 10. He also admonishes them to do these, and when because of the flesh they are lazy, negligent, and recalcitrant, the Holy Spirit reproves them through the law. In this way, the Holy Spirit simultaneously performs both offices. He kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. 1 Samuel 2 verse 6. His office is not alone to comfort, but also to rebuke, as it is written, When the Holy Spirit shall come, he will convince the world, or convict the world, to which the old Adam belongs, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's John 16 verse 8. Sin is everything that is contrary to the law of God. And as St. Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 But to reprove is the real function of the law. As often, therefore, as Christians trip, they are rebuked through the Spirit of God out of the law. But the same Spirit raises them up again and comforts them with the preaching of the Holy Gospel in order, as far as possible, to avoid all misunderstandings, to teach and to maintain the strict distinction between the works of the law and those of the Spirit, we must observe with special diligence that in speaking of good works that are in accord with the law of God, for otherwise they are not good works, the word law here has but one meaning, namely, the immutable will of God according to which a man is to conduct himself in this life. Let me reread that. That is extremely important. The word law here has but one meaning, namely, the immutable will of God according to which man is to conduct himself in this life. The distinction between works is due to the difference in the individuals who are concerned about living according to the law and the will of God. For as long as a person is not reborn, lives according to the law, and does its works merely because they are commanded from fear of punishment or in hope of reward, he is still under the law. St. Paul calls the works of such a man works of the law. Romans 2.15 and 3.20, Galatians 2.16, 3, 3.2 and 3.10. In the strict sense, because his good works are extorted by the law, just as in the case of bond servants, such people are saints after the order of Cain. But when a person is born anew by the Spirit of God and is liberated from the law, that is, when he is free from this driver and is driven by the Spirit of Christ, he lives according to the immutable will of God as it is comprehended in the law and, insofar as he is born anew, he does everything from a free and merry spirit. These works are, strictly speaking, not works of the law, but works and fruits of the Spirit, or as St. Paul calls them, the law of the mind and the law of Christ. According to St. Paul, such people are no longer under law, but under grace, Romans 6, 14 and 8, verse 2. Since, however, believers are not fully renewed in this life, but the old Adam clings to them down to the grave, the conflict between spirit and flesh continues in them. According to the inmost self, they delight in the law of God, but the law in their members is at war against the law of their minds. Again, Romans 7 verse 23. Thus, though they are never without law, they are not under, but in the law. 
They live and walk in the law of the Lord, and yet do nothing by the compulsion of the law. As far as the old Adam, who still adheres to them, is concerned, he must be coerced, not only with the law, but also with miseries, for he does everything against his will and by coercion. Just as the unconverted are driven and coerced into obedience by the threats of the law, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27 and Romans 7 verses 18 and 19. Believers, furthermore, require the teaching of the law so that they will not be thrown back on their own holiness and piety and under the pretext of the Holy Spirit's guidance set up a self-elected service of God without his word and command. As it is written, you shall not do every man whatever is right in his own eyes, but heed all these words which I command you. You shall not add to it nor take from it. Deuteronomy 12 verse 8 verse 28 and verse 32. Believers, therefore, or furthermore, require the teaching of the law in connection with their good works, because otherwise they can easily imagine that their works and life are perfectly pure and holy. But the law of God prescribes good works for faith in such a way that, as in a mirror, it shows and indicates to them that in this life our good works are imperfect and impure. So that we must say with St. Paul, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 4. Thus, when Paul admonishes those who have been born anew to do good works, he holds up before them precisely the Ten Commandments, Romans 13, verse 9. And he himself learns from the law that his works are still imperfect and impure, Romans 7, verses 18 and 19. David says, I will run in the way of thy commandments, Psalm 119, verses 32. But also, enter not into judgment with thy servant, for no man living is righteous before thee, Psalm 143, verse 2. The law demands a perfect and pure obedience if it is to please God. It does not teach us how and why the good works of believers are pleasing to God, even though in this life they are still imperfect and impure because of the sin in our flesh. But the gospel teaches us that our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God through faith for Christ's sake. 1 Peter 2 verse 5, Hebrews 11 4, and Hebrews 13 verse 15. In this respect, Christians are not under the law, but under grace because their persons have been freed from the curse and condemnation of the law through faith in Christ. Though their good works are still imperfect and impure, they are acceptable to God through Christ because according to their inmost self, they do what is pleasing to God, not by coercion of the law, but willingly and spontaneously from the heart by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, they continue in a constant conflict against the old Adam. For the old Adam, like an unmanageable and recalcitrant donkey, is still part of them and must be coerced into the obedience of Christ, not only with the instruction, admonition, urging, and threatening of the law, but frequently also with the club of punishments and miseries, until the flesh of sin is put off entirely and man is completely renewed in the resurrection. There he will no longer require either the preaching of the law or its threats and punishments, just as he will no longer require the gospel. They belong to this imperfect life, but just as they will see God face to face, so through God's indwelling spirit they will do his will spontaneously, without coercion, unhindered, perfectly, completely, and with sheer joy, and will rejoice therein forever. 
Hence we reject and condemn as pernicious and contrary to Christian discipline and true godliness the erroneous doctrine that the law in the manner and measure indicated above is not to be urged upon Christians and true believers, but only upon unbelievers, non-Christians, and the unrepentant. So that's Article 6 of the Solid Declaration there, talking about the third use of the law. Now, Lutherans, properly speaking, they do best when they are obsessed with the Ten Commandments. In fact, I think any Christian out there worth his salt, who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, ought to do this. They ought to memorize and know the Ten Commandments by heart as this amazingly perfect guide. So, a reason for this, let's take a look here at Romans chapter 13 here, beginning in the 8th verse. Uh, St. Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. But when we ask that question of what does loving my neighbor really look like, and what does it look like to love God, we come into some problems when we try to answer that question ourselves. <clears throat> For we hear Jesus say that the two greatest commandments are uh, the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself from the book of Leviticus. Two greatest commandments. Now, if you ask anybody on the street, anybody out there who maybe they go to church, maybe they don't, you, you go up to them and you ask, so how do I love God with everything that I am? And how do I love my neighbor as myself? I think if they're honest, they're probably going to go, I don't know. <laughs> they, they're, gonna, they're not going to know what they're, what they're actually doing. Even if they're one of those people that says, all you need is love. But the problem with just saying love for its own sake is, while that is all well and good, we need to look to the scriptures to find out what that means. So we understand that in the New Testament, the word for love there is agape. It is uh, a kind of faithfulness and looking out for somebody. It is loving that person in, in such a way that you seek their good for their own sake. It, and we kind of understand this when it looks, when we see at, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I love myself. And what does that look like? I feed myself. I clothe myself. I'm faithful to my needs and desires. I, I do all this kind of stuff. And I should be doing that for my neighbor as well. But then I, I ask the question of, well, don't I do bad things to me too? Lord knows if I sin, I'm not only sinning against God, but I'm sinning against myself. Because every time I sin, I'm, uh, I'm hurting my own faithfulness. I'm hurting my faith in God. I'm committing an idolatry so I I can hurt myself and deciding to not sin is a way to love myself so I, I ought not sin against my neighbor either 
and I should admonish them to not sin either. Okay, so we have some broad answers. I want to look for God's priorities first and foremost. Do my best to please God, that is loving God above all things and with all of me. And then I want to love my neighbor as myself. I look out for my neighbor the same way I look out for myself. Okay, fine. How do I do that? What are some examples of what that looks like? And what are God's priorities such that by following these priorities, I please him and I fulfill this command to love him? By myself, I can't think of that. Maybe because the law is written on our hearts, we could, we could come up with things like, well, don't kill anybody. <laughs> uh, I, I don't just get rid of my stuff. And I don't abscond with my own things to put them somewhere else and never have them again. So I better not steal from my from my neighbor there. Okay. And you know, maybe I should give instead because I like getting stuff for myself. So I should also do that for my neighbor too. Okay. All right. That sounds good. I've kind of constructed through thinking about it. You shall not kill and you shall not steal. But I'm still in the dark about a lot of it. So here we come to the need for the Ten Commandments and why St. Paul, when he, he connects love, agape love, to the Ten Commandments. Saying, alright, they're all wrapped up in this. So your first priority is to say, how do I exercise agape? And then we take the law, which Paul brings up here, these Ten Commandments. He takes the law... And he uses that as a kind of a tutorial for how to agape somebody and how to agape the Lord our God. So let's go ahead and read the Ten Commandments here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we're going to go ahead and start in the sixth verse. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, or you shall not kill, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, 
or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, these Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you in the land you are going to possess. Uh, you shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, cattle, oxen, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Uh, yes, Deuteronomy chapter 5 does have a bit different ordering for commandments 9 and 10. Um, they, it flips the order between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But that's okay. We have the Ten Commandments here. And we got to ask ourselves, okay, this is God's holy law. When I ask, how do I love God with everything I am? And how do I love my neighbor as myself? The Ten Commandments, while well, following them perfectly, does that. It just does. It is the commandments, and St. Paul cites them as the commandments. The first function of this law, though, is to uh, mitigate evil, to, to have an orderly society with, with things for the government to do. You know, in Romans chapter... Uh, 13 we hear government exists to kill people and break stuff and to reward good behavior because that's what the law does the law tells us don't do this evil stuff and the government puts a real threat in this life for what happens if you do that bad stuff so uh, murder if I murder somebody and I violate the fifth commandment the government is there to punish me for murdering somebody. God assigns the government to do that. That is how life is just run here on earth. So government exists, in God's eyes anyway, the one who established civil government, to basically enforce these commandments. And yes, I know governments don't do it the way they ought, and God will judge that on the part of the governing authorities. But their basic job is to limit evil on this earth. That's called the first use of the law. The second use of the law is, well, it points us to our sins and our damned state. How does this mean? Well, if I look at my life and I go, okay, well, if I want to please God, I have to obey these commandments. And even if I sum them up as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, have I done that? I ask myself that. The law bears witness against me that I haven't. And I can look at each one of these Ten Commandments and find some sin any day, some way that I have broken all ten of them. It witnesses against me and says, you are a fool, you are an evil man, you are in judgment with God. You need a savior because you cannot save yourself. You deserve the death penalty ten times over, times a billion, times inf infinite here. And so the law crushes me to powder as I think about these things. This is guilt, my actual guilt, whether I feel it or not, it's there. So the second use of the law is this 
mirror that tells me how I'm doing in 99.999% of the time, it's going to tell me that I'm falling short and that I need a savior. Now, most Christians probably stop with those two uses there because after we've heard that second use of the law, after the law has borne witness in our conscience regarding our, well, scornful, condemned state here, we then hear the gospel. That yes, although I am a terrible, ugly, evil, poor, miserable sinner, my Lord Jesus died to pay that penalty for me. He was perfectly obedient to the law on my behalf. He was perfectly obedient and in spite of his perfect righteousness, our Lord Jesus went to the cross in our stead. He took all of that punishment that we deserved instead of us. So I understand that suddenly now, while there is still weeping for what happened on the cross, Jesus took that from me. That is no longer my sin. And God looks at me and he sees me in my baptism and says, I've united this one with my son who died for him. I find no fault with him because of this. Suddenly now the wrath of God is gone. And it's amazing. My conscience is cleared. And any time I am feeling the weight of the law bearing down on my very soul, I can take comfort and solace in Christ who died for me. And I can look to my baptism with all of the promises of salvation that scripture speaks of regarding it and go, I am, I am truly blessed. I have this treasure with me at all times and nobody can take that away from me that I am saved. That, I, that the forgiveness of my sins and the salvation won for me uh, from Christ that's applied to me in my baptism. I rejoice. But do we stop there? Do we as Christians then say, all right, well, the first use of the law, you're not going to get around it. it it's got to be something to make life on earth more tolerable so we're not all just killing each other, cheating on each other, stealing from each other, bearing false witness to destroy our reputations, and then uh, blowing stuff up and never being charitable, never doing anything good for a relationship, and uh, peeing on our parents there, destroying their lives. Like, the government's there to make sure that this kind of evil and the, the wages of our sin are somewhat limited because of these punishments and threats that they can uh, dole out to us. But if we stop there, if we just stop there, uh, apostasy is kind of just looming behind the corner, behind the door. Because we don't know how to live. We don't have a what now? And we can, we can search the scriptures. We can go here, for instance. Let me turn to the book of Micah here. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It is a total life verse here. We go to the book of Micah, chapter 6. And Micah, he, he actually asks this what now? Because, well, darn, what do I do? What do we do? He, and he, on behalf of Israel, he asks, um, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with 
thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And God replies, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God? So maybe I maybe then I read that verse and I'm like, okay, well, I have these general ideas here of justice and I have this general concept of walking with God and loving mercy. Okay, so, hmm. Well, to love justice and kindness tells that's pretty similar to law and gospel already. Walking humbly with my God. Okay, so I want to be receptive. But what's justice? And for that matter, how do I exercise kindness? I still have no clue. I have no idea how to live and what to do. So I even go to the words of Jesus, and maybe I, I read our Lord's Sermon on the Mount for how to live. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find Jesus, Jesus is asking people basically to do impossible stuff. He's asking us to do things that people just can't do. Or even if they do it once, they're going to fall on their face and not be able to do it. So, well, where does what Jesus says come from? And it always comes back down to the Ten Commandments. Literally all of Christian morality, all of Christian ethics, comes down to the Ten Commandments and the two greatest commandments. If there was any hole or crack or anything that was left out of the Ten Commandments, the two greatest commandments, summing everything up, tell us to have the general attitude of agape love for God and for our neighbor. But even then, the Ten Commandments, they just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And this is where people, they, they forget about this third use of the law that tells us how to live. That tells us that, yes, while you were a sinner, before you became a Christian, the law squished you. But that law doesn't go away now that you are redeemed by Christ. Instead of being your enemy, now it's your friend. Now it's your compass. Now it is your wisdom. As the book of Proverbs constantly ties together wisdom and righteousness, wisdom in keeping the law, over and over and over again, King Solomon does this. Why? Because it is wisest to follow the will of God expressed for us. And if I follow these Ten Commandments, and I really take the time to understand what each commandment means in depth, and how to apply each one in my daily life, then in addition to that, I always have an answer to the question, what is God's will for my life? Because as the uh, formula of Concord defined it for us, they said the, the, the law, the law properly speaking here, has that one definition in the Christian context of God's immutable, eternal, unchanging will for mankind's life here on earth. Now for the unbeliever, punishments are doled out, namely eternal hellfire for their sins. But for the believer, there is a kind of discipline, because our old Adam is still there, we still sin, even as believers. 
And if the, the punishments are there for us as a way of correcting us, a way of making us better, so too are the rewards. Uh, for instance, the fourth commandment, you shall honor your father and your mother, includes this promise that it may go well with you in the land you are going in to possess, and your days may be long. So if I honor my father and my mother, which includes, by the way, obeying governing authorities, well then, hot dog, I'm going to live a longer time. At least that's the way it should work out. A hot dog, it's going to go well with me. I can, I can prosper if I'm following the, the societal rules there, and I can prosper if I'm a good son to my parents, to my father and my mother. In fact, just think about it in terms of wisdom here. If I am the only child that actually goes out of his way to honor his father and his mother, then when they get ready to die, who's going to get the best inheritance? Well, me. <laughs> Just even thinking about it from a purely worldly perspective, the Ten Commandments show that there's rewards for following them in this life, and there are punishments or discipline for disobeying them. So a healthy fear of God... And that is part of loving God, is rightly respecting and fearing his power, fearing his displeasure because I love my Heavenly Father. Well, that's going to include following this law, being afraid, but also being willing for, these, uh, for the good things God can give us in following him. Now, that's the third use. The third use is taking these Ten Commandments, and all of God's holy will for our lives, the, the two greatest commandments, in saying, this is how I live my life. Now that I am saved, I do not obey them because that is how I please God. For um, as the confession says, I can't do that perfectly. But now I want to as a believer, knowing that the law no longer says I am damned, I want to follow my God. I want to follow these commandments. I recognize God has my best interests in mind when he gives me these Ten Commandments, and I wish to continue doing them all my life. Now, somebody might be asking, regarding the third use of the law, well, does that include, oh, I don't know, shellfish? Don't eat shellfish. Don't eat pork. Uh, don't wear mixed fabric. You know, uh, we've all had that uh, bitter atheist friend or enemy or frenemy that says, shellfish. And they, f they forget that there's a distinction between God's holy Ten Commandments, which get cited over and over and over and over and over again as the way for us to live. And the essence of Christian morality they forget the difference between that and the civil law, and the ceremonial law. In the Old Testament, God gave um, the nation of Israel a way to live for their laws, their civic laws. Here's how you punish people. Here is, um, here is how you maintain the distinction between yourselves and others. It was, it was a specific application of the Ten Commandments in order to have this society that was separate from other countries in the world, but also 
um, had its own way of running things. And we can't keep the ceremonial law either. This is one of the reasons why uh, in the book of Acts, God specifically tells Peter, rise Peter, kill and eat for animals that previously had been determined to be unclean. Now, God was not abolishing the Ten Commandments, but he was abolishing the specific and temporary civic law that said, don't eat shellfish, don't eat pork, don't have uh, mixed fibers here for your clothing, because that's what the pagan neighbors were doing. So the ceremonial law and the, uh, the Levitical law, the, the civic law, and how all that stuff worked, that was good in its time, and it informs us on how we can establish good governments here. But that's not the capital L law we're referring to. That all comes down to the Ten Commandments, and the two greatest commandments which, which summarize them and uh, fill in any gaps in our mind. But then the question might be, well, what about our Lord Jesus? What about his commandments? What about apostolic commandments? A good example here being St. Peter. In 1 Peter, he gives us these virtues to follow, these seven virtues that we need to look at, and he wants us to practice them for the development of our own character. Ah, the answer to that is everything brought up there is a fulfillment of and description of obedience to the Ten Commandments. Virtues help us obey. Second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that is agape love, seeking the good of the other for their own sake. So if I agape myself, or agapeo in the first person here, that's what's best for me. Not always what I want, but what is best for me. And if I want to be better as a human being and seek what is best for me, St. Peter says, seek the virtues. That's going to make you a better person and more pleasing to the Lord your God. Who, by the way, the very first and greatest commandment given to you is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, I want to please my God. I want to worship him only. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. So, if I want to do that, then following these virtues then... In seeking the cultivation of virtue is a way to obey those commands. So St. Peter gives that. All of the commandments in the New Testament, with only a couple exceptions, follow along these lines. A couple exceptions there being not eating anything sacrificed to idols and not drinking blood or anything strangled. That was, uh, those were, in its time in the New Testament, the controversy concerning food sacrifice to idols was that this was how pagans worshipped. So observing a pagan religious ceremony, or the fruits of it anyway, and benefiting from that serves as a temptation to actually worship pagan gods. And furthermore, things with blood, well, it's icky, first off. And second, it's also something pagans were doing. It is a, a way to mimic the pagans. So the apostles banned the use of blood and things strangled and food sacrificed to idols for Christians. And I would say that's still binding on us today, especially because we don't want to live like ancient pagans, do we? 
And that's a, a way to fulfill the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians, when St. Paul tells us, uh, when you're taking communion, examine yourself first. Make sure that you understand and you discern the body, the elements where Christ is with his body and blood. And that you're not just treating this as a, a daytime snack or something. When he says that, what is that but a way to follow and a, a command given us to us derived from the second of the Ten Commandments to not take the Lord's name in vain? Because I, as a Christian, have been given a name which comes from the word Christ. And am I taking Christ in vain when I take communion wrongly? Absolutely. And am I really worshiping God if I take communion, this sacrament of our Lord Jesus Christ? Am I really having no other gods before him if I do not rejoice in and partake in this wonderful gift he's given me? You see, everything that the apostles and our Lord Jesus gives us as Christians is the specifics of how to follow the Ten Commandments the same way in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the children of Israel were given specific ways for them to follow the Ten Commandments. It all circles around the Ten Commandments as the capital L law. And now that we have the gospel, which frees us from the condemnation of the law, we rejoice to freely serve, trust, and obey. Amen and amen.